body of Christ, Lisa. Amen. Come on, body of Christ. Father, what are you doing? Body of Christ. What are you doing? Body of Christ. No, stop it. it that's cruel. Come on. Lisa, no, honey, it, what is wrong with you? Stop it. If this is a joke, Father, it, it's not funny. I... Lisa. Oh. oh. What? scares us and what saves us. This is the fear of God. Hello and welcome back to your favorite podcast at the intersection of faith and fear, where every week we discuss what scares us in order to find what saves us. This is the fear of God. Speaking to you right now is one of your hosts, Nathan Rouse, and deciding to show up today is fellow co-host Reed Lackey. Reed! I got hey, nothing buddy. to do. Yeah. Hi. I was, I was, this is my this is my night, you know, just Dude, pick it. This is it's a special very, occasion. Very exciting. Yes. We're we're, so- we're celebrating midnight mass tonight in more ways than one. Oh um Riri, we have a special conversation today, and I don't want to waste any Ooh. time. Is there any business that, that really merits pointing to for our listeners? One major bit. Um, if you are hearing this message. You literally have two days. If you are hearing this as of broadcast, you have two days to get to the Foggy Award voting survey. We will be closing the Foggy Award voting down as of this release. We're going to be closing it down in two more days. So if you have not done so, you're like, oh, I'll get to it. Oh, time is ticking. So 
please, please get to the foggy vote uh, to vote for best picture, director, performances, writing, all of those fun categories. And then we'll be following up with some information about how we're going to reveal the winners in a, in a very, very fun way that I'm excited about. But yes, importance is to get to the survey to vote. Get to the voting booth. Riri. Nay, nay. We've been discussing Midnight Mass, right? A show about as fine an intersection to what we do here as any media we've ever discussed, except for, of course, The Exorcist, which you'll never fail to bring up. Uh, we've been doing that for a number of weeks now. Um, our final conversation about episode seven and the broader themes just released this past Tuesday. Shameless Indeed. plug to get episode one through six discussion. Join Patreon at just five bucks a month or wait until mid-year when we release the complete conversation. So you and I, uh, along with listeners, along with Asia and Vera, when they've guested, have been in the trenches with the inhabitants of Crocodile Island, seeing their joys and their sorrows, their sins and their songs. And while you and I each have lengthy backgrounds in the church, sometimes in leadership, sometimes as lay folks, it felt like a stone was left unturned or perhaps unrolled. So we have some special guests today, Reed. Some mm -hmm. new, some longtime friends of the show, but all members of that both holy and horrific vocation of clergy who will help offer some particular insight into the goings on of Netflix's Midnight Mass. For our very first guest today, um, despite Reed, you and I uh, sharing an avid Midnight Mass fandom, uh, she kind of puts us to shame. Her background <laughs> is as a United Methodist pastor, and she now runs an organization she founded called the Order of St. Hildegard, an intentional mm. community designed to serve those who feel they don't belong in a traditional church setting. However, her real claim to fame this evening is she is also a massive Midnight Mass fan who started a Facebook group specifically to discuss and celebrate the show now with close to 400 members. Welcome to the fear of God, Francis Cutshaw. Thank you. It's like you were born to be here. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yes. Thank you for coming along. Our next guest. That's awesome. Is that there's three of them today, everybody. Three guests, wonderful people. Our next guest is a personal friend of roughly 20 years, having attended the same alma mater as Reed and myself. He not only helped cement my love of the X Files, which listeners will know well, and as well as Jeff Smith's bone, but he also sang at my wedding 18 years ago. Look at there. He is a youth pastor in the United Methodist Church, a professional cartoonist whose Wesley Brothers online comic featuring the misadventures of John and Charles Wesley spun off into its own print book titled Submitting to Be More Vile. We have had tried to have you on the show a few times. Friends and foggers, welcome to the fog. Charlie Baber. Charlie, welcome, friend. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here with you. I'm so happy you're here, Mr. Chuckle. We're T. glad. We're glad to hear All you. All right. It's a you deep do? cut Xbox. <laughs> <laughs> so our, our last guest holds the very unique position of not only being my rector locally, a position he holds at St. Martin's Episcopal Church here in Charlotte, but also of being a contributor to helping me redeem my hard heart when it comes to my cynicism around church leadership, as my family found his congregation in the wake of our own spiritual trauma in a church setting. More and higher than that, though, he has the blessed distinction of having baptized our youngest daughter her first Easter five years ago. He is a board gamer, a pastor working on his D-men in imaginative apologetics, which is just badass. And my <laughs> friend, welcome to the show, 
Father Josh Bauer. And Josh, thank you for being here, sir. So happy to be here with this Motley crew. Indeed. Motley, we are. (laughs) What a thrill. It's so awesome. No, this is so glad to have you. I did not, with the exception of Charlie, because we did all go to college together. um, It's a real privilege, uh, Francis and Father Josh, to meet you both. Uh, Thank you so, so very much. Um, We have some inaugural sort of things to get the ball rolling, get the ice broken, get some conversation flowing. Um, So I'm going to come to each of the three of you uh, sort of in succession. With a couple of questions uh, that we like to inaugurate uh, pretty much everybody with. I'm going to change it up a little bit on question one, uh, just uh, oh due to just to, due to the variety. But no, it's not. It's not a surprise. Um, so, so the first thing that I'm going to lead with is just uh, we have a little segment occasionally shows up on the show of just what you've been watching. What you've been reading, what you've been listening to, uh, could be, you know, relative to horror. Doesn't have to be. Um, so uh, I'm going to come. Actually, I'm just going to pick it random. I'm going to come to you first, Charlie. Okay, I'm comfortable with you because I know you. Yeah. Right? So, <laughs> so, but no, I'm going to come to you first, Charlie, and just uh, yeah, just mention either one thing in a little bit more detail or two things briefly that you've been watching, reading, and or listening to. I have a little show and tell. Uh, so I have been listening Ooh. to a beginner's mind by Sufjan <gasps> Stevens on vinyl. Oh, wow. And uh, Clarice yes, is, Starling on it. That is Clarice on the cover. Yeah. That's um, so funny. And uh, I, my understanding is they basically are going into deep cuts of a bunch of movies that I don't know anything about and just writing songs about them. That's um, awesome. It's so really like, is the whole album featuring a movie or the album is each song is a different movie? I think each song is a different movie. Um, I I haven't done the research on it much, That's right. but but I just, it's very, it's a chill vibe that I need in my life right now. And then the other thing I wanted to share is uh, I've been reading a graphic novel called The Magic Fish by Trung Lee Nguyen. And it's uh, a young adult, well, a middle school boy um, who loves to tell fairy tale stories to his immigrant mother while she uh, sews as her profession. Um, he goes to a Catholic school and he's gay and nobody but his best friend knows. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to think of a way to tell his mother in their native language. Wow. He doesn't know the word. Um, and so it, it was a powerful coming out story um, that blended fairy tales as storytelling really beautifully. And um, you said it's called the magic fish. Is that what you said? The magic fish. Yes. Okay. Mm. Uh, it's it's beautiful art, beautiful storytelling. So highly recommend. That sounds awesome. so wonderful. No, it's very exciting. I I just queued up while you were talking, and I'm going to do the same thing for Magic Fish. I just queued up Beginner's Mind because I'm like, oh, new Sufjan. I haven't seen that, so that's fantastic. I'm really really excited. Would you uh, call it Sufjantastic? Sufjan, uh, I wouldn't, but since you did, I'm going to second you. Um, so, <laughs> so <laughs> Francis, I'm going to come to you next. Uh, what's something you've been enjoying, watching, reading, whatever? You know, we watched 1883, and I don't mm. know if you've seen that, but it's the prequel to all the Yellowstone stuff by mm-hmm. Taylor Sheridan, and it actually isn't meant to be horror. It's horrifying in parts, and it's just a Western, but it's told through the eyes of a 15 year old girl and it's so poetic and honestly i just mm. cried my guts out through the entire thing i think i needed it um but i just wow. think it's beautiful incredible um now is, it, is the season is the season finished or it's yeah yeah 
I think it's okay. a it's a it's an open and closed like like midnight mass. It's a oh, limited okay. series, yeah. So you mm. can get into it and, and get out. The I've had uh, a lot of people recommend old Yellowstone. I have not jumped on that bandwagon yeah. yet. I was I was going to say a similar thing. The, um, the in fact, I was just talking my wife and I with a, a, a another couple that are good friends of ours, and they were eager for us to get into Yellowstone. And it had been on my radar since it first debuted because I was a Kevin Costner fan. I'd say was I still am a a, a loose Kevin Costner fan. Um, but then you know, eighteen eighty three, uh, headed up by Sam Elliott, right? And then yep. Tim McGraw, <clears throat> Faith Hill, yes. and um, so, so yeah, it's in, but what I did not know, and thank you for it, is that 1883 is a, is a closed loop. So that's, that's yeah. interesting to know. Yeah. I'm really, really curious about it. So eventually we're going to get into all things Yellowstone. My, my friends are going to drag me through it one way or another, uh, but it's very cool. Very, very cool. And uh, Josh, what about for you? Uh, you know, I actually don't watch much TV. I want to, but I just can't. <laughs> um, there is this uh, podcast I like. There's this comedian on, on Spotify. Um, that I really like. Have you heard of Joe Rogan? Oh, man. <laughs> I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm just he's kidding. An, he's, an, he's an up and comer. He's an up and comer, that one. Uh, yes. You know, he's, he's nipping at the heels. He's broken. <laughs> Charlie puts in too soon. Okay. Okay. Um, no, like, uh, I mean, I am totally into this novel that I'm rereading for the first time in like 20 years. It's the Canticle for Leibowitz. Um, oh, I've heard of this. Post-apocalyptic, okay, yeah. like deep um, future, but like what would the Catholic Church be like a thousand years from now? Um, it is astoundingly good. And it's huh. um, it's sort of like, what do we do with things that we don't understand? And so they just preserve like what they call memorabilia. And it's huh. like mm. somebody's old grocery list and they don't know what it is. Um, it's, but it's about art and, and the power of tradition. It's, it's pretty awesome. That's Josh, fantastic. we, we pointed to this show recently on our podcast, but that sounds similar to at least the show. I've not read the book of station 11. Did you get around to that at all? I've, I'm on like the third episode of that. Okay. Um, some but I have echoes. read the book and they're, okay. they're similar in that, like it takes a lot more to, um, to be a human than to merely survive, mm -hmm. you know? So it's, that's definitely one of the, the themes of this book. Very cool. The Canticle of Leibowitz. That's awesome. awesome. Those are some, yeah, those are some fantastic recommendations. Really appreciate that. Um, <coughs> question number two, before we dive into the crock pot full bore, uh, hopefully not too much boiling water there um, is, uh, and, and, and I'm going to go in reverse order. So Josh, I'm coming to you first. And then we'll go in reverse order. And you can get as existential or as silly with this question as you want, uh, as deep or as shallow, your choice. But I just want to know, what scares you, Josh? The metaverse. I'm really afraid of the metaverse and what it mm -hmm. entails for humanity. I think that um, the continued digitization of humanity is problematic at very best and probably deadly at, at worst. So uh, I am reading a, a philosopher, Sarcastus is his name. I can't remember his, for his first name, but he has a substack called the Convivial Society. And mm. it's, um, it is a critique of this push to digitize us. Um, so at least there, there's a little saving grace in that, but the metaverse ain't good, y'all. What, no. <laughs> what was the name of the 
the Substack? Convivial. The what? Convivial Society. Mm. Mm. No, I would. Uh, I would echo. Yeah, uh, <laughs> pretty much everything that you said. Indeed. Um, Francis and Joe, Joe, Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan. The Joe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start bleeping every time yeah, yeah. I'm bleep it on the edit oh, every single time. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, no, uh, it's sincerely very, very funny. Uh, Francis, what, uh, what scares you? Oh, this is so, uh, this is so hard because it just, you know, there's so much reaction within me just to think about it. But um, I think, I think my first instinct is to say, um, if in terms of if I'm watching something, right? So that's that's where I'm imagining this question from. If I'm watching something, what scares me? And what scares me is nihilism that through the eyes of a director that I where I can't trust the director at all, but all I can and, and I don't know where I'm going. And um mm. and, and I guess you could apply that to just life in general, the sense of is there any resilience? Is whether we're talking about, because I teach resilience, right? So <laughs> the thing that scares me the most is, is there something you really can't come back from? Mm. Is, is there a mm. crisis or is wow. it within a family or in the world that you really can't, or in your body that you really can't, can't bounce back from? That scares mm. the me. Yeah. 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 Understandably so. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's interesting because uh, resilience as a, as a concept is something that I think people automatically presume about someone. Um, I think we have an easier time understanding the risk of non-resilience when it comes to like medical issues, particularly if somebody has something in their body. But it's funny because I think there can be a tendency to push back a lot uh, or, or to dismiss, I should say. If somebody's going through a hard time, oh, you'll get you'll get through it. You'll bounce back. Like resilience is automatically assumed, and that can sometimes uh, position people in a way that they don't take proper care of themselves or or, or listen and pay attention enough to their surroundings, or to their inputs, um, because resilience is automatic. So, uh, so I'd be very fascinated. Uh, you know, another conversation for another time to learn some of what you teach and uh, about resilience, because I think that's a fascinating, fascinating intersection. Um, Charlie, my uh, friend, what scares you? My mine is a little more connected to the opening scene of Midnight Mass, and ever since I got a driver's license, I've always been afraid that I would accidentally kill somebody with my car. Mm. Um, yeah. It just feels like this huge responsibility being a driver, and um, I've had a couple of scares where my own toddler like could have been harmed by a car, um, and so I, and you know. I don't know. So, I mean, Riley was at fault clearly. Um, but, and my fear is that just a random accident would result in somebody's tragedy. But, and Man, that would be my fault. Yeah. I am so grateful for all of you right now. And I know it's, it takes uh, a pile of vulnerability to come on a random podcast and be like, here's the things that scared me. But our whole ethos here, as we toggle in and out of, ridiculously silly and profound is is examining what scares us to find what saves us and so you know this this question of what scares you becomes kind of central to to finding our way in sober recognition of those things charlie you mentioned your 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 toddler and the experience there just the other day and then we'll move into because you gave me a depth segue into the show 
our five-year-old, the aforementioned five-year-old has gotten into this baking show and she loves it and she watches it all the time and wants to, she has what she calls her water kitchen where she gets out pots and pans and fills them with water. And that's where she bakes and stuff while well, she's wanting to get a little more versed in the actual act of, you know, baking slash cooking. And the other day I had just chicken nuggets in the oven and I'm in there with her. I step out of the room to go say a thing to another member of the family. And just because it is totally a foreign concept that she would, you know, kind of tamper with or whatever, any of these kitchen items like this. And I come back in y'all, the oven is open. She has a towel in her hand and the, the tray of chicken nuggets are halfway out. So she has clearly gotten far in this process and, you know, fortunately unharmed and all that. And I, I did good as a parent. I checked real quick, you know, don't bark at her. I did say sternly, you know, you really can't do this when there's not an adult in the room. And she did get a little upset, which stank, but, you know, got the message across, I suppose. But nonetheless, yes, Charlie, I get it. That need to uh, uh, temper our fears of the peril we can inadvertently perpetrate towards others. And especially when those others might even be our own children. Um, I want to pivot us into the show here because ostensibly that's our main event. And man, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to be here with you all. I'm grateful to be talking about this. Uh, what I think is powerful piece of art. Um, now, uh, Francis, I know that you are well-versed in the show. Charlie, you had seen it before. Josh, to my knowledge, this was your first time viewing it for our conversation at least. So I'm, I'm coming to you with this first question because it's, the freshest for you okay. and in, in a general sense curious what about your experience of the show was there something in it something about it something about how you responded to it that surprised you in watching midnight mass um well one is this kind of goes back to francis's fear about like do you trust the director mm. um this has it had sort of a uh an authority, especially in terms of like the um, the recovery questions and conversation, mm -hmm. uh, making amends. It just it felt like it was written and directed by somebody who knew what they were talking about. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the thing I was most struck by, just complete, like it's it's the most scripture rich television show or movie I have ever seen more than anything that even the Bible, like the portrayal of a Bible um, wow. or something like that. It was yeah. astounding, you know? So yeah. the authority of the, uh, of the director. And I think the, the use of scripture. Did you, if I can probe that a little bit, you, you introduced two, two words there, trust and authority. Did you find yourself unsure going in and, and by, you know, coming coming out of the series, finding yourself, wow, I really like, clarify for me what you mean as you watched it you found yourself trusting that this is someone who knew what they were talking about or, or came from a place of knowing this stuff um i mean this is we're beyond spoilers right yeah oh, oh yeah, yeah yeah spoil yeah, yeah. everything <laughs> yes 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 okay. spoil everything so i mean at the heart of it it is basically a the way i read it it's it's basically a story of a person who's trying to um reconcile the past mistake um uh the 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 priest has 
ancient years ago or about 40 years ago, um, messed around with a, uh, parishioner or he's fallen in love with her. They've had a baby. And then he's, he's just trying to undo that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and kind of what happens when we try to, sometimes when we try to reconcile the past, we can actually turn into monsters. <laughs> mm, mm. <Measure laughs> we try to you. like shape reality in our own image. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's what felt like the most, the most authoritative, if you will, in terms of like someone having dealt with the past, it's not as easy as, as just making it all better. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you for that. Um, Francis, I'm going to come to you just knowing your, your experience with the show being as profound as it seems to have been. So, so speak a little bit about that, you know, clearly, uh, when you started the show, it propelled you down a path of investing heavily in discussion about and, and meditation on. So, so, you know, kind of, kind of these, these twin inquiries of what surprised you enough about your experience that first time to propel you forward and maybe speak a little bit of the experience post that viewing. Sure. I think for me, well, I, I didn't trust, I didn't know whether to trust um, the director because I didn't have the experience with Flanagan. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Show. So I had that, it was a totally, it just come out and I had the experience of being completely sucked into the way that it holds trauma and institutional corruption um, and the, and the use of horror to, uh, to really display how the, the church can or how individuals in the church can become corrupted when just their and I, I couldn't see the naive, you know, I wasn't sure. Do we have a totally evil priest here? Where is this sure. going? Yeah. And so <clears throat> for me, uh, when that all changed was when, was when Riley went up in flames, I finally realized what was happening. I felt like I could see enough that he was, he was sacrificing himself in a way mm. that the, the depth and the breadth of the show just all of a sudden I trusted it. And, um, mm. but that's such a traumatic moment. So I guess for me, just the way that it held my trauma, cause I've, I have church trauma, um, the trauma of people around me who I know, um, and care about the way that I saw it digging into that. And yet somehow at the same time, just leveling all of this, um, misuse of scripture. And I know we're going to talk about a lot sure. of things, but, uh, God, just, the, the many spokes there, I, I couldn't, I was flabbergasted. I didn't know what yeah. to think. <laughs> yeah. And so then by the end, yeah, I just was a hundred percent in. I couldn't, I, I had that, like, what just happened to me experience. This, this took everything that matters to me and, and put it through the lens of horror. I, I don't even know what to do with that. Now, so, would you have identified as a, a fan of the horror genre prior to this, or it was more just, yeah. Hey, this, okay. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah very picky but yes absolutely yeah um it's worth throwing in here our listeners will know this uh but for any you know kind of new to this conversation that that maybe i'll share this with or whatever if you're interested in flanagan at least prior to midnight mass the haunting of hill house is a pretty powerful piece of work um and in fact i would have (laughs) read and one of our routine guests uh asia were on months ago before i had watched midnight mass and started talking about midnight mass is like oh it's the best flanagan ever like okay okay yeah sure whatever because <laughs> we're such ardent fans of hill house around here and then i watch midnight mass like yeah okay <laughs> i will join you in your adulation there um 
And, and I guess speak a little, uh, Francis to, you know, so you, you personally had that experience and then kind of wanted to blow that up a little bit in terms of, right. you know, peers and, and, and networking a little bit related to the content of the shows say, say how that was transpiring. Yeah. I was just desperate to talk about it. I was evangelizing <laughs> everyone. I made my mom awesome. watch it. She's 80 years old. She grew up in the church. I forced my kids. I was just making everyone watch it so I could have someone to talk to. And I thought, I can't keep doing this. I've got to find people who've seen it. <laughs> so I just, <laughs> I just did, you know, on a whim, I just started the group and people started coming in droves and we formed this little community that was very respectful. I don't think we had maybe one, two, three little <clears throat> troll comments. Everyone really was coming from a different perspective. And I guess that was part of my fear too in the show is, is this going to be coming from someone so well-versed in the faith who's just going to burn it all down? And how will mm. I feel about that? I think I might understand that, right? Because I, I sure, can go either sure. way. So yeah, every, there was a lot of stuff to navigate in those conversations. Some people who really wanted to see just that nihilism kind of sure. highlighted. And to, to navigate that as a moderator and to try and have healthy conversation without overreacting was a really big challenge for me while also I met some new friends who um, I would say are going to be lifelong friends through this. That's awesome. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, Charlie, what about yourself? Was this your second time through? Yeah. So um, I came in trusting Mike Flanagan because um, I watched the haunting of Hill house through the process of my divorce and my coming out as gay. Mm -hmm. And, um, it was like exactly the kind of horror that I needed yeah. trauma in my life. And um, I trusted that the, I, you know, I didn't know his background with the church, but I trusted his storytelling would be to have nuanced characters that represented uh, a multiplicity of, of worldviews. I just I anticipated that he would handle the subject matter well, but I didn't know it was a vampire show. I had no idea what the scares were going to be. Um, uh, I watched it with my partner who grew up in the evangelical church and didn't get most of the liturgical humor or background stuff. But I knew the moment that Bev Keen corrected Father Paul on his vestment colors that this show was made for me because okay. <laughs> i was sitting there going wait this is the he's not even wearing the right colors what it that's awesome this is an oversight on the director and then she corrects him and i was like oh my gosh that is like next level nerd um but overall the show um what it captured for me uh was uh both this desire to see redemption in a lot of different characters, <laughs> a feeling that I'm a bad Christian for thinking Bev Keen is irredeemable. Mm. And um, the resilience, right? You're not, you're not alone. I mean, just, I, I just, I'm just going to throw that out there, but I just didn't think she got her comeuppance the way that I wanted her to. in this, <laughs> in this, show. I mean, that's a pretty tragic ending for old Bev. I mean, yeah, but it was know. literally the same ending as everybody else. It's, but experienced a little differently, but, but yes, I, I take your meaning. I take your meaning. But, um, I really, um, what it brought up for me was a reminder that I have, I've, I've been in the ministry for 20 years and I've always been, um, I'm a youth pastor, so I'm always low on the totem pole. Okay. And, um, I like that. 
I, I like that position, but I have many times placed trust in leadership above me, mm-hmm. um, particularly spiritual leadership, um, and gotten really burned by that um, on more than one occasion. And I find that I keep returning to just like I meet Father Paul and I really like him. Um, and I don't necessarily, I wouldn't do all the same things he does in ministry. Um, but I almost thought it was, it was an unfair directorial move to introduce Father Paul with the wiggly box that indicated he might not be someone we should trust. Sure. Um, because in real life, when we meet new clergy, usually we automatically trust them. Um, and so that gave us a hint as an audience that maybe he wasn't trustworthy. Yeah. And, um, and so, uh, I don't know, it brought up for me a lot of just why people either don't trust the church or have lost faith in church leadership, um, but also portrayed him as a very complex person that yeah. was conventional. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm not intended to be the recipient of the question, but you're stirring up stuff because I remember watching it the first time, and this is only my, my second time through for for our conversations, and and you're... I said to read a few weeks ago, as we were trekking through those first few episodes, n- namely exemplified in the Holly Holy stretch in episode three, which is just glorious. I said, Dad Gummit, I know where this is going, and yet I still want to believe. Like it is such a powerful storytelling device. To your point, Josh, to, that illustrates one: he knows what he's talking about, and two, that he knows what he's doing. Uh, and sort of getting you roped into that uh, uh, facet of the storytelling. Thank you for all of that, guys. Um, I want to I want to move on to a question that's going to be for kind of for all three of you to jump in as you want, and it may be too high minded, and I can respect that if it's like Nathan, bring this back down to earth, and I can't promise I'll know how to do that. But but our whole desire in in kind of having this conversation was, man, y'all just have a more unique view than boots on the ground, lay folk, uh, uh, you know, who might be watching the night mass. And so just, just wanted to invite that perspective into conversation about the show itself. And so as you watched as vocational ministers, how did the show kind of resonate or contrast with some of your own experiences and Charlie, you touched on that a little bit, which is what prompted me to kind of go here, you know, so, so speak a little bit to that idea in so far as you understand what I'm asking, how does midnight mass complement or contrast your experiences in pastoral ministry? And, and you can feel free to bifurcate the show, you know, to your point, Charlie, those first few episodes are fantastic. Like you really love this guy. And, and even, even if there's a tinge of something afoot, but, but, you know, feel free to answer that. However y'all might, uh, yeah. You know, there's this, this show is interesting because it has this beautiful treatment of, of forgiveness and reconciliation, trying to find the truth and telling it. But at the, the end of the day, it is a really dark parody of the Holy Eucharist. Mm. Mm -hmm. Um, it is straight up like, um, literal interpretation of you know drinking blood and things like that which which is very interesting to look at and see like a um a room full of people eviscerate each other 
um, in that context. You know, the Eucharist, at least in like the kind of higher um, Eucharistic theology that, you know, my tribe, if you will, runs with is that the Eucharist is, is what the world is. It is a bunch of creatures receiving gifts from God and returning them back to God. That's what the world is. And everything else is a parody of that, like war, for example. Um, so then when you see it, like in this, in this dark parody that I see, like in that show, like we all see, it does sort of like put in like, is, is the director or, or maybe just Father Paul just saying, like, is he just using the symbology in order to, to create more vampires? Was it just a cynical ploy to, to make more? Um, that's so that I, I kind of hold these two things in tension. One is that it's, it's this really sick interpretation of the thing that I think matters the most in the world, um, which I'm not offended by. I think it's actually intentional. And then the other is there's these beautiful scenes of reconciliation and people um, self-sacrificing for the good of others and laying down their life and really living scripture. So I, I hold the two like in pretty heavy tension. No, I, I love that. Any, any, any thoughts in response to Josh or, or new thoughts afresh? I have a, just a, just a brief little response. I think there's a capacity in which we're not comfortable recognizing. Um, and I've, 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 I've said an expression of this nature on the show before. Um, but there's that passage that we can sometimes go to where it says like, well, a good tree won't bear bad fruit and a bad tree won't bear good fruit. And, and, um, what I came to as a kind of a realization in my own heart and mind and assessing things inside myself, because I can tend to be neurotic and, and self-conscious and, and, and really beat up on myself. Like, Oh, I made a few really bad choices. I'm a freaking bad tree clearly. Cause those are, those are some really, really bad choices. And what I began to kind of come to peace with at that is that, no, I'm, I'm not a tree. I'm a forest. And there are plenty of things in me that, are going to bear good fruit and bad fruit in my life. And there may be choices I make that if not, if I'm not cognizant and if I'm not conscientious of them might reproduce vampires. And there may be other choices in my life that might produce reconciliation or might uh, be restorative to a certain degree. And I think the hard work is not to monolith ourselves and not to monolith a situation that we see as, as, because otherwise, we kind of have to make choices of exclusion, right? We have to abandon what might have been good work for the sake of some truly heinous things. But then the reverse is also bad to not want to call heinous things like, you know, hein uh, heinous abuse or, or heinous misrepresentation as such because of all the good being done. And I think we need to have a more robust imagination around those kind of things and recognize no, 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 we're, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not a tree. It's it's a forest, and there can be some pruning, and there's some be, there can be some chopping down of certain things, and that that whole landscape is something to be tended to. I think we have a really hard. My main response is just I think we have a really hard time leaving space for that kind of complexity in our imagination because we really need to know what to do next, and we need to know how to feel next about all of the different things, and it does require a certain degree of strength to try to to try to dance around in that field. That was, I was I, yeah. Let, let me just respond to that and then I'll shut up for a while. But the, um, 
I, I, I'm sensitive to that and how we need to, you know, life is complex, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. Um, but Riley and both of his parents chose not to yes. act as vampires. Right. right. And they, yeah. they knew that their integrity and um, I guess you could say like their, their respect for the dignity of other human beings was more powerful than their love of life. Mm. You know, that's good. And, um, and so I think that that showed that they, they weren't going to play the game, even though they were caught in a sinful system. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm, I, no, I, I, I love, I love you bringing that up so much, Josh and, and, uh, uh, Francis and Charlie, you'll, you'll have to learn to jump in quick here, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> and it's all good, but you know, that to me became such a powerful thematic thread by the end of the show is that when, because, you know, uh, we've all just watched this relatively afresh here and maybe y'all had this similar experience your first time viewing it. But when Riley walks out of the rec center after the, the night with Paul, you are not sure or the day rather you are not sure what his next steps are. And that's a really powerful storytelling maneuver to get me there to be like, Oh crap. I really don't know where this is now going. And, and I find it so striking not only his resistance, but I love to your point, Josh, in the finale when Ed articulates because because Riley is the 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 emissary of this idea, this this notion that faithfulness can be uh, discipline, can be setting aside indulgence, right? That 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 perhaps that is faithfulness to a degree, uh, but he kind of is the harbinger of this idea that then Ed and Annie articulate, or Ed articulates very explicitly to her which is all it did is reveal who we really were. I mean, that is mm. powerful mm. that this power, this new re revelation of sorts, all it is going to do other than, you know, in the literal narrative of the story, <laughs> kill you or something uh, <laughs> is revealing what was already in there. And that's a really interesting paradigm established there. Uh, Charlie and Francis, any thoughts uh, on, what is being discussed or, or your own sort of church experience as reflected in midnight mass. I'll go after you, Francis. Oh gosh. Well, I'm, I'm trying to form my thoughts. There's so many, so many feelings and so many thoughts about this. I yeah. think um, having, and it sounds like there's some commonalities here, but having been both on the receiving end of uh, church abuse and also having been and still being a, a church leader I think I was, I wasn't as concerned with what was going to happen with Father Paul Monsignor because I knew that he could go either way. And I was much more concerned with what you're pointing to, Nathan, about the, the context and what happened within the community and what was revealed, um, that was said here about how you respond in this situation and, and who you really are is, is made evident. And yeah. I, I mean, I didn't know it was going that direction, but I think I found myself more caught up in that story and much more concerned with what was going to happen to Riley. And Because if it was going to go that direction where Riley became a vampire, I was just going to be so miserable. I loved him so much. He yeah, just touched yeah. my heart so much. Um, but yeah, I, I did feel in terms of like a true reflection of pastoral ministry or close reflection, I thought Hamish Linklater was an amazing representation of a pastor, yeah. even when he was singing and Walking down the aisle, I was like, God, he's so convincing. He sounds like he's been doing this his whole life. It's mm -hmm. incredible um, tenderness, incredible corruption. And really, that is exactly my experience, is that that's mm -hmm. why that so much damage is done. So. Yeah. Charlie, any thoughts, everybody? 
Yeah. So uh, those who might not be familiar with the United Methodist tradition, uh, our denomination is in the process of crumbling right now. It was just announced last week that, uh, that a new group is forming in May. And um, so there's a lot of turmoil. And um, one thing that has really struck me about ministry during this this time in our congregation's life, but also just in the life of our country, which is so divided, is um, I, I thought this show very subtly, but I saw this as a continuing narrative theme, was kind of the difference between um, thinking that we who believe we have the right beliefs can somehow force the kingdom of God on earth. and it's just so contrary to the gospel that calls the kingdom of God, a woman working yeast into the dough, you know? Mm. Um, and, and so like you see characters caring for each other and working yeast into the dough through relationships mm-hmm. um, all throughout the show. And that is very much contrasted with father Paul and Bev who are convincing people, no, we will take the kingdom by storm now. It's yes. And um, I just feel like that touches on kind of some of the culture in the larger global church right now. To your, I love your kneading the dough to me, the most beautiful of the, one of the, at least the most beautiful illustrations of that in the show is the Joe Riley conversation at that crossroads in the night you know, and let's mm-hmm. be different together or, or however he terms it. It's just so lovely. Here's to being different people. Here's to being yeah. different people. Oh, so good. Yeah. yeah. You know, I want to say that whole recovery theme is almost like this for me personally in, in leadership and in, in the church world, that is a much more dynamic way of doing community um, and making sure everyone is witnessed to, and no one is held as higher than uh, the others. And that was planted right there in that show. It's just even even the holding up of the communion and the and the coin at this in the mm-hmm. same remember that mm, yes. um, scene. And I, I just I I just really have held on to the recovery process as a way of leading groups ever since midnight mass. I, I had not paid much attention to it before. That's so. awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really powerful. Um, so to, uh, piggybacking maybe in, into a, a slightly different. We're talking about Father Paul and, and and just the resonance of ministry, but you know, Paul, Father Paul, and Bev are wildly complex characters. Um, I I know I'll speak for myself that I have a tendency to be very reductive to the character of Bev, and I've said on the show before, I've said in the previous sort of conversations about episodes that one of my biggest reasons for being reductive to Bev is because I know too many people almost exactly like her, and can and that can make it. We calling her Christian Karen. Yeah, but, oh, <laughs> I like it. I like it. I like it a lot. Because, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's really alarming. And I think there can be a tendency. Father Paul is a really sort of on the nose, a complex character. Bev may be a little bit uh, more linear, but I'm just curious what each of you kind of thought about those characters. We've touched on on Father Paul a little bit. Feel free to echo back to that or to expand upon that. But also just curious to hear about what you think about his and Bev's motivations as characters, what drives them, not just in the context of this specific aim, but just what motivates and drives them as people. Curious to hear some some of your thoughts on that. 
I mean, first of all, I, we got to be careful with Bev because we have Bev inside. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, there, yeah. to me, there's like two real big impulses in the church of one of Bev and, and one of Paul, where, you know, one is open and expanding and, and another is, is trying to hold something together um, and judgmental, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, going back to the beginning when Charlie talked about, you know, he wishes that Bev could have gotten her comeuppance. It did remind me of almost like the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Like everybody got paid the same at the end of the day. Like all these vampires just went up and smoke immediately, you know, whether they were evil or not. Yeah. But the scene where Bev is, um, where she discovers, who's the 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 drunk who gets forgiven. Is it Joe? Yeah. Joe. Joe. Thank you. Yeah, Joe. Super fans. I'm sorry. I should have watched it twice. All right. <laughs> um, but when she's like looking at his dead body and she's sort of like, okay, yeah. okay, here we are. And then she goes into problem solving mode. I, I just found that like really fascinating. I think that was one of the stronger scenes in a strong show, you know, just like she's just sort of like dealing with it. And I don't even remember in the show, is there a point where she like discovers the horrible truth or is does she kind of have it all along? It's not explicitly like there's, it's kind of a rolling revelation for her, but it's not, but she is in the circle. It it was super subtle. She first discovers it when she sees his picture on the wall. And it's it's not even like made clear to us that that's what she's seen. Right. Her descent into evil is sort of something interesting to watch just very, very subtly, which is most of us, right? We just, you know, we're the, the, the proverbial frog in the water that boils. <laughs> and I think too, like, I, I, I don't want to be um, actively trying to kind of hold back, like steering the ship a little bit, um, especially with what I'm about to say. I think one of my issues with Bev, and I love how, I love how you put it like Bev is inside of all of us. To me, I see Bev as an unbridled need to control. So the judgmental aspects are clearly very present. That's clearly, you know, but but that feels almost too easy. Oh, the ju- the the stereotypical judgmental Christian. Like to me, it's a profound imagination the fact that she sees like she is able to, with the snap of her fingers, able to grasp. Oh, uh, Monsignor Pruitt is now a very young man, and you know these these qualities can rejuvenate people. And it, like she's able to sort of go along with that very very quickly, which requires a certain degree of creative imagination, which I keep coming back to. But I think her issue is she sees everything as the new means to control, and I think that's part of what. I know in myself, that's part of what can be profoundly difficult to avoid. The temptation to try to avoid is I need to control how this goes. This is going off the rails. I need to bring it back in. I need to, I need to steer it. And I think a lot, I'm going to go back to the, the uh, sort of uh, nature analogy, not a forest, but, but like a garden. I was recently having a conversation with uh, my wife, actually, about something, this notion of like, well, if you plant a seed in the ground, and then you're so worried that it's not going to bear fruit that you keep plucking up out of the ground every other day. No, it will never bear fruit. Like you, you need to leave it there and you need to let happen what happens. And I think that dance of providing the right amount of care 
to water it and to tend to it and to make sure that the soil is right, that's really an art form that we don't all have a great grasp on. And a lot of us go the Bev route, I think, uh, maybe not necessarily in church contexts, but maybe in other contexts, we'll go the Bev route where we're like, no, 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 you, you have to do this, you have to do this, you have to do this. And we're so assured of our rightness and we're so assured of our correctness that we don't let, any, we don't let anything just be. Um, and that is, a, that is my pathway to sympathizing with Bev. I still disagree with her. There is no version of me that thinks that she's right about any of it, but that's my pathway to sympathizing with her is in recognizing those impulses in myself to want to control things, to need to have a particular outcome. Why? Because my outcome is clearly the best outcome that could be had. My like, Why would there be any other outcome? My outcome is, is clearly right. Um, sorry, I just had, I couldn't resist uh, interjecting, but Charlie, Francis... I would Your say on- Bev, Bev is the ultimate executive pastor. I know it's a Catholic church, <laughs> but she's got all the skills, baby. Like <laughs> problem solving, making sure nothing uh, gets in the pastor's way of his vision and like absolutely yeah. devoted to his cause. And um, interference. Yeah. And um, I mean, it goes really bad, of course, because she also has... Uh, like you said, control issues. And I think um, she's a power grabber. But um, mm-hmm. what I don't like, uh, it, it, to uh, Josh's point, is uh, where I see Bev and me is like the whole, okay, you know, screw it. We're just going to burn it all to the ground. I'm done with this. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just like, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, it's so easy for us, whatever our set of beliefs are. Um, to just think that we're so right that the best thing to do is just burn everything and start from scratch. Yeah. Um, yeah. And mm-hmm. um, I totally have that in me. There's days where I'm like, look, my own denomination doesn't think that I deserve to be in ministry because I'm gay. Um, mm-hmm. But I love the local church I work for and they love me and I'm going to keep working yeah. for people like me to be in ministry. Um, yeah. And there's days where I'm like, nope, nope, let's just burn it all to the ground. I'm going to go to a friendly denomination and start over. Um, yeah. And yeah. Uh, so it's just sort of, um, I, I hated Bev all the more because um, she reminded me of those tendencies in myself. <laughs> Which is, yeah. maybe, I don't like people like that in real life, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I no, think. I can um, be- Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. No, no, no. You, Francis, you go ahead. Well, I, I think with Bev, it was like she had the, in the story, she had the role of being the mouthpiece of the absolute worst of everything. But at the same time, what I see in her is a woman who can only rise so far in leadership and is going to have that ongoing frustration and tendency to wound because of that need for control. So I you know, they hinted a couple places, Flanagan hinted at this in the beginning when she was meeting, um, she's supposed to meet Monsignor at the dock. And then she says, I'm like a jilted prom date. And mm. then this is a little weird. This is an uncomfortable thing to talk about. But um, do you remember when they're sitting on the bed and he's considering like how hungry he is and, and she's talking to him and he, there's a, there's a little bit of a, 
It's a little bit of a hint of something where you pick up on Bev that she's disappointed that maybe there wasn't going to be. Did you pick up on that? Like there was just a little oh. hint of her disappointment when they were sitting on the bed and he said, I just need someone to confide in and they're very close and it's just yeah. a little bit uncomfortable. And yeah. then she, she kind of turns away and she thinks she shakes off something and walks away. And I saw in that, that tension, just that, that ongoing need for being seen, loved, valued. And she turned into the, the monster that kind of, made her in the first place you know uh that she was a lot worse than than what we would have hoped for obviously but yeah uh, mm. yeah well, i think she was a vampire long before she was a vampire yes yeah well <laughs> to, to your point i mean we talked about this a minute ago the the articulation of it only brings out what was already there like yep. you know uh, she is the most um I'm going to use this phrase, but I'm going to then soften it. She's the most two-dimensional when we meet her and kind of stays a relative course of this only increasing in her, in her sort of, you know, mustache twirling ness. Now what's, what's savvy about the show and why I would, and hear me like episode to episode, you are enraged by Bev, you know, she, she, and in fact, a, a discovery I made through mine and Reed's conversations, episode to episode of the series was even Paul starts to adopt her methodology and thinking Josh, you pointed to when she's so brusque posthumously with, um, Joe and uses some scriptural reference to dis to casually disregard his having passed. Um, that's what uh paul uses to say oh well it wasn't murder because it this he was just nothing anyway point being this escalating sort of tension about her strength of villainy if you will so uh, you know progressively speaking as the show proceeds you know bev's kind of villainy powers up she's like thanos with infinity stone she just gets more powerful but at the same time what i find striking and lovely is as much as I want to, and listen, Charlie, I'm with you. I'm the one who gets flack on the show sometimes for wanting to, to cast folks into the sea. Um, you know, the villains of the story, uh, who rub me the wrong way. And yet at the same time, I think what's sort of special about this show is it doesn't let even the viewer off the hook there because Annie, our Annie puts her in her place from and from a character perspective you know um dad gummit i just had uh that text up but um annie basically you're says you're, you're, yeah your your whole I'm life you've person. needed to hear this you aren't a good person god doesn't love you more than anyone else you aren't a hero you certainly aren't a victim of riley god loves him just as much as he loves you bev why does that upset you so much and where i want to go mm -hmm. with this and land with this on bev is is yes she she is drawn to the beach where she attempts to hide in the most absurd way possible. That's, that's as utterly tragic as it is mildly comic, but what finally pushes her over it's because she looks over at the other and sees them praying, mm -hmm. right? That's what happens. She's on the beach, Hassan and his son, Ali, who have experienced whatever can pass for reconciliation for them here at the end are praying. And she, who just a scene earlier has, has totally degraded Hassan on every human level 
is seeing that and the words of Annie are, are nailing her. Right. And, and that's when the, the final moments of her life are. And, and, and I can't help, but find that the show indicting me, the viewer, the show illustrating what, what that we all got to just let go of that, (laughs) you know, now that's easier said than done. And I get it. But to me, that's just a really powerful moment there at the end. Well, and let it not go, let it not go unobserved that, you know, Sheriff Hassan's observation to her, uh, the, the scripture that has always stood out to him, that he makes the sunrise on the just and the unjust. And, uh, that, that sort of leveling of it, you know, uh, Josh had mentioned earlier about the workers of the vineyard are all got paid the same, like, this is all just coming down. And so you stand where you stand. Some of them, you know, sort of sitting with the ones that they love, singing a song, some of them desperately clinging for shelter, some of them just praying for as long as they can possibly pray. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's it's pretty affecting, pretty powerful. Um, so I, I want to come back to something that has been touched on already a little bit, but maybe in a more deliberate way. How, Josh, you had said earlier in this conversation that this is one of the, and I forget, forgive me, uh, how you had phrased it, but basically like one of the most sort of scripturally resonant, or, or I, I don't know exactly, you know, it uses more scripture than most other things that you've done. Even adaptations of the Bible use less scripture than Midnight Mass uses. And I'm curious for us to interrogate that for a little bit. Just how did the usage of scripture in the show strike you? Um, you know, uh, the there's a lot of proof texting there's some bits of profundity here and there. So talk a little bit about just the way the show engages scripture and, uh, and, and lever- I say leverage as if it's only a manipulative tool, but like the way that it deploys scripture sometimes to nefarious and abusive ends and, and sometimes to some ends that are, that are a lot more resonant and lovely, but just curious to hear from any or all of you on that. Um, so I had a, I mean, there's plenty, but I had two in particular that landed uh, very differently for me as problematic. Um, Mm. First, and I think probably one of the most obvious is uh, when um, the two church members walk in and see Joe's dead body Mm -hmm. and uh, Bev basically tells them the right thing to do is cover this up. And Mm. she she quotes Deuteronomy 17, 12. And first of all, I'm like, Who's memorized Deuteronomy 17, 12? Bev has. Uh, the the verse says, she quotes is, the man who acts presumptuously by not obeying the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God, that man shall die. So she threatens to kill them with scripture if they don't help cover up this murder by their priest. And they just blindly obey. And... I, I think that resonates for me with this sort of belief um, that there's an infallibility to the church or an infallibility to church leaders or an infallibility even to uh, man-made doctrine that we ascribe to. Um, and that if you don't obey that, get the hell out of here. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you're not a true believer. And I just, I've, it's very problematic way of thinking about church and doctrine to say that um, we can't question because by questioning we're opposing God himself. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so that's the first one that really, um, like just, I was so angry at that usage. Yeah, um, of course. The other was much more subtle and I had to look it up. Um, and it was the very first scripture used in the show. And, uh, when, um, jo- uh, when Riley's in prison, his mom gave him a Bible and pointed for him to read Genesis thirty nine twenty one, which is mm. the story of Joseph in prison. Mm. And I think his mom was not trying to misuse scripture, but I also think that her basically saying, I mean, the idea behind the scripture is, you know, God is going to work good out of this. Everything happens for a reason. Just have faith is kind of the message that I think Riley received from that. I think that's kind of the beginning of his atheism. And I think that, mm-hmm. um, I've, I've served as a hospital chaplain in the past and uh, had lots of opportunities to be with people in pretty severe tragedies, um, in my church as well. And, um, when we don't know what to say and we want to lead people to just trust in God, I think we can say some really damaging things to people that Mm -hmm. don't allow them to grieve and lament the trauma that they've been through things that don't allow them to, um, to question God, you know, just, just have faith. Um, yeah. Well, and he, to jump in there, Charlie, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't remember which one it is, but in one of the AA meetings, he attacks that pretty heavily too. that concept, Mm -hmm. you know, just suffer because suffer because suffer because like he, he he really goes to town on that idea. Um, the absolving, the absolving of God because, and, and, one of the things that resonates so much with me about what you're saying, Charlie, is is have faith. I was I was having some conversations uh, in the past couple of months uh, about just the way we can say, when when we say certain things, we don't always even if they were pressed on, we don't always even know what they mean. Like to your point, the plat the platitude of well, you just you just got to have faith, have faith in God. You, you, but, but why to like have faith to what to what end? to be there with me, to produce a certain outcome, to turn things into good, like, you know, have faith. What, what, what is that? And, and I think a lot of times we can kind of try against that to, as, as just a means of our own antidote against spiraling too quickly or too heavily or too far. Um, and I agree with you sometimes in our efforts to like not lose the ledge, we push so many other people over it. Um, like the the tragedies that take place and and the things that are hard for us to explain threaten our safe, secure, structured little worlds as much as they do the people to whom they happened to. And if if we are not agile enough and brave enough to be able to sit in uncomfortable moments, like I'm just going to sit. I don't know what happened here. I don't know any of this. I don't, I don't understand what took place. I don't, I don't know any of this. And if we're not able to sit comfortably there, I couldn't agree more with you. We can do some, some profound, uh, some profound disservice, some profound damage. Yeah. The way that um, the misuse of scripture was spun out was just, I think that maybe I'm not sure who said it was done with such authority. Um, the director showed such authority over the scripture and um that was, of course, really impressive in terms of highlighting the misuse of scripture. But for me, 
Um, and the contrast was Erin Green's use of I am that I am in her mm. final, um, yeah. in her, her death sequence that was so powerful. And for everyone that I know who saw it, and for a lot of folks in the group, that was that was so powerful that it was it was kind of beyond comprehension, beyond our ability to articulate why. Yeah. It's just such perfection. Um, I was blown away by that. Um, you know, lately I've been I've been listening to this uh, lecture of a, of a historian of of religion and proof texting. I didn't know this. Is his name Ro Jogan? Josh. <laughs> Um, wow. How did you know? He's got a little <laughs> podcast on Spotify. <laughs> oh Sorry, this, carry on. Um, <laughs> the proof texting is a distinctly American phenomenon. I did not know this, um, but mm. it, it came up as uh, in the in the mid 18th or 19th century um, as as really an anti intellectual uh, movement to say like the Bible is authoritative. Um, in all places at all times without context. So people could just throw stuff at each other and systematic theology, creedal Christianity was considered suspect. Um, so, and I've never heard anybody proof text somebody like beautifully, like I'm going to Matthew 25 your ass uh, because, <laughs> because God is like hiding out in the pain of the world. Uh, you know, like I want to serve Christ in you, damn it. You know? <laughs> so, oh, it's great. I, you know, and and so people. I mean, I think that like proof texting is is all throughout that show, um, and it's being just deployed as a uh, an integrated text, like like in the recovery scenes in particular. Uh, the the pastor is just soaked in in scripture because he's super old and he's been reading it for a long time. Um, yeah. But also like the, the, the show sort of proof text with imagery as well. I'm thinking especially of the miracles of the healing of the paralytic. Um, and, uh, and then some of those, um, those proof text visuals are um, reversed. Uh, Aaron and her pregnancy Mm-hmm. Is Aaron? Mm-hmm. Is she the the pregnant yep. woman? And yep. then, like, sort mm-hmm. of like her baby disappears, and we we find out what that means. But she's, you know, sort of has like she's a Mary figure, I suppose. But it's an incarnation, you know, mm-hmm. like her her baby mm-hmm. just disappears without reason at first, and and just as Jesus comes along to Mary without seemingly any reason. Um, and then, like, you know, is it the last line of the show where the young woman who was paralyzed, she says, I can't feel my legs? Yes. Yes, that's right. And she says it, like, in this really hopeful tone, like, wow. it's a miracle. Mm-hmm. I mean, that I yeah. was just, that was like, I'm done. I'm slayed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's amazing. That was one of my favorite. That was one of my favorite. So I love that ending, and I love that that is the final line, uh, the final line, because it said so much to me about the way what had happened had been undone. You know, it means you know, it, with it's it's probable to conclude that the the beast, the being, was not able to flap its wings to the to the horizon. You know, mm-hmm. because it probably would have you know still if it had been alive, the effects might have still been present there. Um, and so, and it spoke so much about how, yeah, the, what was done has been undone 
again. And um, it, it was fascinating to me as well. I don't have the language in my pocket or the depth of spirit. Um, maybe after some more time, I will to recognize like how profound it is that to be able to sit back in the place where you can't walk is the place where now, okay, mm. something has been made right. To sit wow. back in the place where That's you powerful. can't walk is the, is, is the place where th- something has been made right. And um, I think the show has a lot to say. I also want to piggyback on something Francis said too, that I've, I have thought a lot about that I am that I am. And I, again, don't have, I don't have the, 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 the depths to really get at all that that is, but just such a profound statement of connectedness and a profound statement of just, just recognition of your part of the whole. And, you know, it did prompt, it did prompt me. And again, I, I haven't landed anywhere. It would be really nice if I came in as like, and here's what I learned out of it. But no, I'm in, I'm in process with that. Um, but going back to that, that that's, that's the answer or part of the answer. It's not the whole answer. That's part of the answer that God gave when um, Moses asked his name. You know, like, who, who am I going to tell you? Who am I going to say that sent me? And, and it did. It, we can, and here's what I'll say at this moment. We can find so many ways that, that we try to define something. We try to live and die by like, this thing is this. And we do that with ourselves and we do it with God. And the openness of the simple observation, I am that I am, the openness of that, not hemmed in, not bound up, not restricted, I am that I am. And there is, you know, because... There's a freedom to it, but freedom doesn't just mean you get to do what you want uh, exclusively. It also just means like, yeah, there's, there's an openness. There's a, there, there's a widening of, of the gate, as it were. And, uh, and that has just, again, I, I don't have all of the depths and certainly don't have a little bumper sticker, but it's just that that has resonated a lot with me that in her final moments, you know, that was one of the things, again, speaking for herself. That was one of the things that really resonated with her is just, no, I, I am, I was, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and I am. And, uh, that's one of the things that I think one of my, one of my favorite expressions of understanding God is, is, you know, that was, and is, and is to come, you know, this, this timelessness, this openness, uh, of it, which I find profoundly beautiful. Anyway, I don't know that I, offered much of it except for saying, I know I love that part. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm just so moved by and read your illustration that, that better articulates what I think I was scratching out earlier of this thread of Riley's sacrifice, Ed's verbalization, this, this notion of losing as completion, right? Lisa at the end and and it hadn't clicked with me until Josh you just articulated that way this hopeful hopeful lilt to the delivery that in setting aside a thing wholeness is found the, the, the idea of Lisa's sitting back into a wholeness and and threading through this thing mentioned earlier you know about about Riley's resistance to the urge and that that ed articulates and i just can't i can't um 
that that Aaron in the that I am ending is is this notion of loss as completion like mm. that is an incredibly powerful and and why bev is the tragic character because she's unwilling to lose and yes. and and what that says to us and and how instructive this concept if 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 our ears are open to hear it is that that wholeness doesn't mean whole speaking for myself there um you know, let me just jump in yeah, please. to say like in the gospels tradition like the first gospel that's written is mark and jesus's words on the cross are my god why have you forsaken me mm -hmm, right and then like 30 years later john's writing and he's saying it is finished and i mm -hmm. think there is a there is an understanding that in the cross something very very important is happening where the um the full humanity is being redeemed but it has to be in this defeat so it is like this this reconciliation of understanding ourselves as weak and that is good you know she's she yeah. can't feel her legs yeah it's a yeah. it's a wonderful thing it the def, um evil has been defeated mm. Well, I want to thank you for addressing my biggest fear. So I'm, I'm good now. I'm, I'm all, you know, you just fixed me. I'm, thank you so much. I'm so serious. You might've just really done me a world of good. <laughs> this was a long winded way of getting to that. Francis. This was, this is an intervention for you. We're glad you came tonight, Francis. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I think I, that's gonna well, help a lot. <laughs> well, one of my one of my favorite Rich Mullins lines, uh, you know, the I, I, I've cited often, but <sighs> it's in it's in a song called "Hard to Get," and where he says um, one of the lines, and my favorite line, he says, "I can't see how you're leading me unless you've led me here, where I'm lost enough to let myself be led." Mm. And there's such a I think about it often. There's a power to that uncertainty and 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 the the less i'm able to control the situation and the more i'm able to just sort of flow with it like a river or like wind that's the more that i feel you know sort of at, at peace in my own skin even though everything is not at at peak as it were if, if everything is not where i would love it to be but i can still be at peace in my own in my own sense of self um and uh yeah so it's it, it is. It's it's very affecting. It's very powerful. You know, uh, Francis, you you opened talking about this fear of of can uh, is there a breaking point on on resilience uh, effectively? And that's me paraphrasing my memory of how you articulate it. And it's funny, uh, uh, you and I have never met before tonight, but but I've thought in sort of my own personal church baggage uh, at its peak resilience the idea of it the idea of bending until and or breaking was a very present thought right a very present <laughs> damn a very present friend that thought right of mm. of of what is too far before redemption is still possible and 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 i this is perhaps equal parts lived experience as much as it is hopeful you know, hopeful son of a bitchedness, which is to say stories like this stories and conversations like we have here are about pointing to the furthest reach 
where we think breaking is and still saying the brokenness is the hope it's the hope right that that it's lisa articulating i i can't function physically and what a great thing that is and that's mm-hmm. incredible to me to be able to have that you know reed and i talk a lot about how how sh- how shows and movies end is what its teller its storyteller wants you to think about what the story is about that's been being told to you right and if that is truly if if we're not just reading into it there if that is truly the message to be received from lisa's line there that's incredibly powerful to me about about and 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 read forecasting for where we're going after we get done with the group here tonight uh, uh riley says i did my best and and y'all it is enough it's enough mm-hmm. and that's that's incredible to me that 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 a whole community can burn to ash and still a redemption will take place for them on some level and that's really powerful to me charlie so uh scripture in the show every episode is named after a book of the bible right right and it progresses from genesis through revelation but also the show takes place in liturgical time. So the first episode is Ash Wednesday. The final scene is Easter sunrise. Mm -hmm. And um, for me, I think what draws so many people, like we can't rid ourselves of the Bible, like Brokeback Mountain, I just can't quit you. <laughs> but, um, I wish I knew how to quit you. Is the I actual wish I knew how to quit you. Sorry. <laughs> um, is uh, is um, it's the story of all of us. Like it's our story, and um, so without saying it, each episode is a book of the Bible that is also like what's relevant to the first episode being Genesis is that there is a new thing happening, a creation of sorts in this community and it could go good or it could go bad. Mm -hmm. Um, and it goes bad. Right. And then, um, you think like the episode, the gospel, I think is the one where Riley is killed. Right. Or maybe it's the one where he sacrifices himself. Gospel is the one where he uh, ends his life by choice. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and so there's just, um, I, I, I feel like part of what is true about the Bible as an authoritative document for so many people is, um, like liturgical time, it, it tells the story of our life together in community, hmm. um, a story that just keeps, we just keep repeating, uh, redemption and sin and brokenness and repentance and redemption and sin and, yeah. so on and so forth and um and it is horrific and it also ends with easter sunrise in that moment of her not feeling her legs and um that's me trying to tie it back in and not totally sure no yeah. the conversation but and um, i am so thankful that you all are here and we've all had this i did want as a final question that that wasn't really uh, i didn't prep you for but won't be too difficult if you have any remaining ideas or thoughts or notes is that what have, what hasn't been asked about your experience of midnight mass that you you want to share um so it's, it's pretty open-ended here and just feel free to jump in 
I was I was in a place of forming this new organization and right in the throes of it. Can you hear me well? And mm-hmm. um, I, I was in a place of that working with people who were heavily into deconstruction and anger and hurt and trauma. And I was in a place of picking apart what doesn't work and where the hurt has been and where the church has failed. And when I watched it, what struck me was how much I missed church because what I'm doing isn't really church. What I'm doing is a different kind of ministry. And I hadn't been in an institutional church because I need to be building this other thing, knowing they're going to work together, but really focusing on the wilderness part. Right. And so I'm watching midnight mass and I'm, I'm weeping because I'm watching a corrupt church that I miss. Mm-hmm. And it was just an, an incredible experience. And then just the last thing I want to share is I just keep hearing Aaron say, um, I, I always forget. And she's talking about that. It's not just about me. It's not yeah. just about self. So. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for wow. that. Francis. Um, I think uh, something that the show did well, I'm not, maybe we've touched on it is, um, the first people to be killed by the vampire are the nobodies and the rejects of the island. Mm. And the first person to notice that the drug dealer is missing is his mom saying, you know, he's a member of this community too. Mm-hmm. Mm. Wow. Um, and I, I thought that um, it, it reminded me of like statements. I don't know who said it in history, but like first they came for the immigrants, <laughs> you know, just sort of the like, mm. we don't care when it's the people that we don't know. Um, but clearly it came for everybody. Right. Um, and, um, just the gospel compels us to pay attention to the the outsiders and to value them that the sun rises and sets equally on all of us. So, well, and in fact, Charlie, her line to the sheriff in that scene is when something like this happens, we're all supposed to be the same. Uh She's just, she's just really recoiling from what feels like the lack of care for her missing son. Yeah. Yeah. Josh, any final, any final thoughts? You know, um, I did read one little article on this show. Um, and I think that the director, is it Flanagan? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, He sort of like says he's like a confirmed atheist. Mm -hmm. Um, and like the people that like definitely, don't get affected by the vampirism are the ones who don't participate in the, in the Eucharistic feast. Right. right. Or at least like part two of it, where it's sort of confirmed, if you will, mm-hmm. um, where they take in the whatever, uh, or they have to be killed. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know. I just think that's interesting <laughs> that he's placed these um, skeptics in mm-hmm. the, in the role of at least survivors, if not heroes. Um, I mean, the true heroes, I mean, Riley, I think is the hero. Um, he's the yeah. one who <laughs> decides that he's going to use his, his, uh, life as to reveal the truth, which it is interesting that that episode is called gospel. It's like, yeah. we're, we're showing you the truth. So I don't know. I don't know what to do with that. I think there's something interesting. I, I, I try hard in this, this age of cancellation to separate art from artist. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like we've lost that capacity as a culture. Um, if we keep doing this, we're not going to have much of anything because <laughs> yeah. we're all sinners. Right. Um, 
so I don't know. I just think it's interesting how how he's an atheist, and then like these these other ones who didn't um, finish the right are are um, allowed to thrive. Uh, it's just just an interesting dynamic for me. What I always think of when I when when I hear a, any any degree or version of that sentiment expressed, it is not a clean one for one. So forgive the clunkiness in which this is about to transpire. But I think often of the way that. Christ indicted the Pharisees and said that like the whores and the tax collectors would get, would enter the kingdom of heaven before they would. Right. And obviously he doesn't cite like atheism, you know, per se, but I think about it often in the way that a person's lack of belief can often, I'm not saying anybody in this conversation is doing this, but people in the church like, Oh, Oh, well, I'm going to write off everything that they say because it's, you know, because they're an atheist. So and and it's a credibility thing where they say, oh, well, clearly, you know, I don't have to pay attention to anything that you're saying because of that. And I get challenged by myself, by Christ's admonition to the people who were pretty certain that they had everything in line that, you know, Maybe there, I'll say it this way, it's clunky. Maybe there's a time to listen to the atheists about what they have to say about religion. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, and, and, um, and I think that's something that it, again, if, if we are able to, to open ourselves at least enough to, to pay attention and to listen, then, you know, it doesn't mean we'll come away agreeing. You know, I had a, I had a conversation with just last night with a cousin of mine who is uh, a, a confirmed agnostic. And as I was conversing with them about different things, I constantly ran into, I was just trying to share ideas. I swear to God, like, if you know me, like I am not really a proselytizer. I'm just not good at it. I'm not a, I'm not a good salesman in any capacity. Happy to share my thoughts on any Rolodex of things uh, without being prompted, as a matter of fact, but, uh, you know, but, but not good at the proselytizing. And as I was exchanging with my with my cousin, I constantly felt this tension of like, he was constantly pushing back against things that I was simply trying to share human to human, but there can be this, this antagonism, this wall that sort of comes up. And, uh, and I think a lot of us, not just in the church, but also maybe outside of the church have developed calluses because of how much and how frequently people have agendas or people have, you know, you, you mentioned the whole like cancellation thing. We just don't have a very robust imagination. We don't have the capacity to be able. And I'm not saying, oh, you have to accept and engage everything from that's, you know, hopefully people can hear the nuance with which I'm sort of tap dancing into that. Um, but I do. I think sometimes I sometimes appreciate the perspective of someone who takes religion seriously. And I do think Flanagan takes religion seriously even though he himself would not express a posture of faith. Um, and I appreciate that. I, I really appreciate that he is at least seriously grappling with these ideas instead of just like a seven hour hit piece, which I, which right. I think would have been far less profound than what we actually have in midnight mass. Yeah. I mean, I can't tell you how many times folks have come to talk to me to, to you know, in a moment of deconstruction, whatever you want to call it, talk about how like they they have no faith anymore and like god's let them down and and i my i encourage them to like keep going because you're actually on the precipice of faith mm -hmm. <laughs> you're you just need to keep going a little i think like atheists don't go far enough 
Like <laughs> you know, everything needs to be taken down and then you'll, what's left is God, you know, even your yeah. own doubt. That's the last idol, by the way, to come down is your mm. own doubt. And we have to mm. tear them down. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't Jesus say, destroy the temple and I'll rise it again in three days. <laughs> you know, it's like, we're so worried about things falling apart, but what's true will always it will always rise again because it's, it's, it's true. You know, like my favorite, I cite it often. My favorite GK Chesterton quote is we shouldn't be afraid of the faith dying because it, it, it has a, a leader who knows the way out of the grave. Mm. So we shouldn't be afraid if culture or anything else is said like, Oh, Christianity is dead. No problem. <laughs> like, yeah, like, we've been here know. before. <laughs> <laughs> we thrive in these circumstances. <laughs> exactly. I can't feel my legs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I, I feel like this could go on for hours and hours, but, um, but I, I just, I want to express so much appreciation for each of you for spending some time with us. Um, just for having this conversation uh, in all of the circles in which you have it already, and then for bringing that wisdom and that insight to to our conversation tonight. Such a pleasure to see you again, Charlie. It was such a thrill and a pleasure to meet you, albeit digitally, Francis and Josh. Um, just uh, really, really appreciate it very, very much. So listeners, this has been a very special edition, if you will, of, uh, of Midnight Mass. Um, I do want to give a brief opportunity uh, because a lot of you have different things going on. I'm just going to go around really quick. Charlie, I'll start with you. Go to Josh and go to Francis. Share with the listeners if they want to find more of what you do. We gave a little salvo in the beginning, but where can they go? Be like, hey, I really I want to hear more from them. Uh, where could they do that, Charlie? I'll start with you. Uh, I do an online webcomic every Tuesday uh, called WesleyBros.com. Bros is in brothers. And uh, I process my own theology. I satire the church and have built a pretty cool audience over the last nine years. That um, And so uh, I'd love for you to follow me. Like awesome. and subscribe. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. Wow. Um, Mash that button. That's right. Uh, <laughs> jo- Josh, where can they find you? They can find me at St. Martin's in Charlotte. That's about it. Amen. Not in the metaverse. <laughs> I mean, God, not not the metaverse. See me in real time. Like, I'll <laughs> give you my phone number. Just check 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 out the website. Come see us in person. We're old school. That's awesome. That's <laughs> awesome. And Francis, where can they find any of the number of things that you're involved in or engaged in? Well, we're hoping to be more old school at some point. But right now, uh, you can find the Order of St. Hildegard at www.orderofhildegard.org or on Facebook. And you can also find me on Facebook as a, as a mentor and um, speaker. So. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we really, I, seriously, it doesn't, it doesn't do justice to just say thank you, but from the bottom of our hearts, thank you so much for, for your time and for your insights and for sharing of yourselves. Um, we really appreciate it. And uh, Nathan, thank you as always. Thank you for putting this together. Uh, I don't know if we really highlighted that, but thank you so much for reaching out to each of these wonderful individuals and listeners. Thank you so much for being here. As we say on every episode, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And in that spirit, we encourage you to fear nothing else and to be on your way rejoicing. Thank you again, everyone. And uh, listeners, we'll see you next week. See you next week, guys. 
The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. Start by visiting thefearofgodpodcast.com for links to our social media, essays, and episode archive merchandise and more. If you love what we do, please consider becoming a patron by visiting patreon.com slash thefearofgodpodcast. There you'll unlock exclusive bonus episodes, extended standard episodes, online event access, and so much more. We want to issue a special thanks to Jacob Hunt of tracermatula.com for our artwork, also to our assortment of talented musicians, including Andrew Nelson, The Island Family, and Jackson Harper for our varied show tunes, and also to Lee Wright, who helped me, Reed Lackey, write our theme music. Special thanks also to Tyler Smith at morethanonelesson.com. Lastly, be sure to subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice, and if you listen to us through Apple Podcasts, we would greatly appreciate a rating and a review. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. Hi, everybody. <laughs>